0: We live in a time when living life under kings and queens uh, with real authority is a matter of stories and fantasies. Uh, we don't live in a season, in a, in a period of a history of the, of, of, of the world, where governments govern through kings who actually have power and authority. So in some way, the theme that we will be looking at this morning may seem a little foreign and strange. We're going to talk about God's king over his people. But the story that we are going to look at this morning from God's word sets the pattern of a real king, of a human king, over a real people, the people of Israel in ancient times when God intended to set his reign over his people through a king that he would set up and establish. Even though David, uh, about whom we will read today, is not set over us as king, physically his reign has taken place long, long ago. It's behind us. The passage of Scripture that we will be looking at this morning is significant because it sets a pattern of how God established His kingdom among His people. And this is good for us to embrace and to see. Let me give you just a picture before we look at the passage of Scripture. A picture how the kingdom that God sets for us and over us is actually very relevant for us Christians today, for this congregation, for any local church that proclaims the gospel. Uh, The men of our congregation are working this year through a training, we call it men's theology training, and uh, this afternoon we'll be meeting again for our reading and discussion, and the book that we are reading and discussing this afternoon is a book called Corporate Worship, and I will read a quote from it because it captures this picture of what we are doing here, like right now, as we gather, and as we gather Sunday after Sunday in the name of Jesus, as we live as a gathered people, what this has to do with the reality of God's kingdom. The author Matt Merker says the following, When we worship, we exemplify the culture of God's kingdom. A church is counter Its worship services should be so, too. After all, our meetings are like a gathering of exiles on foreign soil. We declare our Pledge of Allegiance in the creed. We sing our national anthem in the hymns. We teach our constitution in the preaching of the word. We issue passports. That is, we identify believers as belonging to Christ's kingdom when we baptize. We and we enjoy a foretaste of our future national feast when we take the Lord's Supper. And in all these ways, we, quote, disrupt the prevailing culture of our age and disciple believers into the culture of the king. You see, everything we do as a church In the very way we gather every week, in the very things we do when we gather, things like the Lord's Supper, like baptism when we have people getting baptized, uh, the proclamation of the word, uh, the fellowship that we have with one another is all aimed to make visible the invisible kingdom that God is establishing. So this morning, as we look at the passage of scripture from the book of 2 Samuel, we will be looking at a time in the history of Israel's storyline when God established a king over his people. And the way he did it and what he did would be a pattern for how God is setting up his kingdom in this earth. Let's open God's word to 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to chapter, to verse 25 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 5, 1 through 25. Here is God's word for us this morning. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem, "...against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul." Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built a city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, Send messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shammua. Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nefeg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-parazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-parazim. But the Philistines led their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam, the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Giba to Gezer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of this word in our hearts as we hear. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you revealed to us a history of how you have worked for your people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Father, I pray that you would help me proclaim this word and I pray that you help us hear it, that we may understand your heart and your purposes in the way you would bring in your kingdom among your people. We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. As we continue our way through the book of 2 Samuel, uh, if you've been with us, you, you know now our rhythm, we take a chapter at a time. We've been through the first four chapters of the, this book so far, and uh, months ago we, were, we had worked through 1 Samuel, but there's something monumental about this chapter. If you're just reading it without recognizing what's been going on prior to this moment, it may feel a little odd. Somebody becomes a king. Somebody's anointed, he wins some battles, somebody builds a house for him. Interesting. Without some context, this may just feel a a normal development in the story of this book, but there's something monumental about this chapter. There's something about what's going on in this chapter that if you've been tracing the history of first and now second Samuel you come to realize this is the day this is finally the day David is anointed king over all Israel we've been waiting for this day since first Samuel chapter 16 David has been waiting for this moment from the day he remembers Samuel calling him out and anointing him secretly in his father's house. But such a long time has passed. And it's not just a mere passing of time that's been an obstacle. As we know, uh, King Saul, at first, he was happy about David for slaying the Goliath. Uh, but Saul had changed his mind about David and treated him poorly and mistreated him, persecuted him for a long time. So many things went against David from 1 Samuel 16. And even when Saul died and David thought, perhaps this is the day. It was only a minority of the tribes of Israel who recognized him as king. It was only two of the, ten, of the 12 tribes and for six and a half, almost seven years, David is actually a king over a, a a miniature part of Israel. I wonder what's been going on in David's mind and heart all these years about God's promises. God, you promised to make me king over your people. Is this it? Am I just going to be king over just two parts? I wonder if David ever wondered if God would be faithful to him and the promises he had made him. Instead of being king, he was persecuted. Instead of being welcomed and, and recognized as a king, he was driven away. Sometimes having to live in Philistine territory to save his life. So we get to this place in the storyline of this book, and it's the moment When indeed, 1 Samuel 16 is finally being fulfilled. Friends, in the storyline of this moment, the author, the narrator, is selecting a few stories that highlight the monumental change that's taking place in this chapter. These stories are not presented in chronological order. The author is not trying to describe the events in this chapter sequentially. For example... King Hiram of Tyre his reign overlapped with David only in the last 10 years of David's reign. Uh, these are stories that the authors bring in together to drive home a specific point about the king that is being anointed in this chapter. And even though we don't have kings ruling over us in terms of government officials, God's intent has been to set up his kingdom over his people. And the way God establishes David is a foreshadow of how God would establish the ultimate king over his people, King Jesus. Jesus, when at one point he was asked to teach the disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer, the, the, the second request, our Father who art in heaven, the first one is, hallowed be your name. The second request is, your kingdom come. Jesus knew very well. He was very aware that he is the one who is actually ushering in the kingdom of God in a climactic, monumental way. David is the foreshadow. David is the miniature king who is actually helping us see the kind of way, the pattern that, that God is taking in setting up his kingdom among his people. So the the point this chapter is teaching us is simply this. God establishes his king over his people. God is establishing his king over his people. What we get with David is a small blueprint of the real big edifice uh, of what God is building. So let's listen to the storyline of this chapter. And we will see three major moments in this chapter Uh, That all describe the kingship that God is establishing through David. First of all, his kingship must be received as God's provision. His kingship must be received as God's provision. Second, we will see that his kingship is established by God for our good. His kingship is established by God for our good. And finally, his kingship relies on God for victories. His kingship relies on God for victories. These are the, these are the parts that, that this chapter is teaching us today so that even though we live centuries later from King David's physical life, we get to hear how God wants to establish his reign among us. So let's look at this pattern. Let's look at this, these lessons that this chapter gives us about the king that God is establishing over his people. His kingship must be received as God's provision. This is what the elders of Israel finally come to embrace at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 5. They come to David at Hebron and bring him three acknowledgments that show David that they are ready to receive him as king. First, the elders declare that they belong to David. Look at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. These are surprising words, aren't they? What do they mean? Now These words are meant to be the first reason why David should accept being their king. It's amazing how now they, the, the tribes and the elders, represented through the elders, uh, are the ones coming to David convincing him he needs to be their king. These elders understood well the command God gave them back in the book of Deuteronomy about the kind of king who should rule over God's people. One of the conditions was that he had to be an Israelite, one from among your brothers. And this was the elder's way of saying, David, we are your family. But there's more here than just the fact that, David, we are your people. In this phrase, we are your bone and flesh, There's something more about these words, this imagery. They could have said, David, you're part of us. You belong to our family. But that's not the way they frame it. They say, we are your bone and flesh. By this imagery, the elders see themselves as one body with David. They recognize finally acknowledge their oneness with David. They're about to ask him to be their king, to rule over them, to be head of the kingdom. So by this imagery, they're, they're recognizing also their submission to him. If he's about to be the head of the kingdom, they see themselves as the rest of the body. By the way, this image is going to be used again in the New Testament. To describe the relationship between Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. And also to describe the relationship between a man and his wife. Oneness and submission. This is what these elders come to recognize in their relationship to David. Then uh, another reason that they bring to David is they recognize David's abilities. In verse 2, he says, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. David had acted as a military leader, even without the title of king. Perhaps these, the, 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 the moments in history that this is referring to is the days of uh, Saul's early reign. When uh, the women used to sing that Saul conquered thousands and David conquered ten thousands. Remember those days? That even though Saul was king over the nation, actually it was the victories that David had won that were supremely much better. So these elders recognized, David, you've actually been our military leader, even without the title of a king. He knew how... He knew... Uh, how to lead in battle. Not coincidentally, this chapter will end with two battles uh, that David will lead the people, and we will see the secret of David's lead in battle. But the greatest reason why these elders want David to be king is not only because they are his bone and flesh, not only because David has the ability, he has proven it even without the title, but the final reason, and this is the most important one, The elders finally want what God promised. The elders finally want what God promised. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now the fact that they it is they who are quoting God's promises to David is significant. This is not David telling them, "Hey, God promised me to be king over you." No, they are the ones who are saying it. It's as a as a way, it's as if they are finally acknowledging that what God has chosen, they are now ready to receive. The elders align their plans with God's plans. They submit to what God has chosen for them. And in this response, the elder of the elders, we see a pattern of how we must respond to the king God has promised and has chosen for us. These elders, for the previous seven years, have rejected, have stayed silent. Not only that, they've actually chosen a different king. Ishbosheth. But friends, here we see the elders finally saying. We get it. God has promised you to be king over us. We want what God wants. Friend, if you're not a Christian, have you considered that God wants you to live under his authority by receiving the king that God has promised? Sometimes non-Christians may be looking for some fuzzy feeling of some sort of a religious experience to have with God or some spiritual experience. But let me just say plainly, with fuzzy feelings inside or not, the plain truth that God wants every human being is to recognize God's king that he had promised and that they would receive him as their king Over their lives. It's plain and simple. To embrace God's reign, of God's King over our lives, this is the call of the gospel. One of the best summaries of the message of Christianity is actually a short brochure written for children. Its uh, title captures what the call of the gospel is. The title of this brochure is who will be king? We have these tracts out in the foyer. We encourage you to grab them, put them in your purse when you go out, when you have opportunities, whether it's at restaurants, grocery stores. Have them handy. It's a sweet way to give someone a short summary of the message of Christianity. But the gospel starts with the news that humanity has rejected the highest authority of all the universe, our creator. Because of that, and because our creator is supremely good and holy, He rightly judges all rebellion against Him. He rightly judges us. And He rightly will pour out His wrath over all evil, including our rejection of Him. But God in His mercy and goodness also sent His own Son to take a body, flesh and bones like ours, And through his perfect obedience to the point of death on the cross, his own son would avert the wrath of the highest authority in this universe, would avert his wrath away from us by taking it upon himself so that his favor, his blessing would become ours for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to take upon him the wrath we deserved. And God raised him from the dead on the third day, causing him to conquer death and thus prove that he is the supreme king. Oh, friends, when we trust in Jesus as our savior king, we forsake our self-rule and submit to his reign in our lives. Friends, the good news of Christianity restores us back to the promised king. He's the king that our hearts need. He is the king that our hearts must receive. He is the king that God has chosen for us. What the elders have done with David in 2 Samuel 5, we must do with Jesus. By receiving him as king, we too acknowledge that we are his bone and flesh. That's why in his incarnation, Jesus' taking on human flesh was such a big deal so that we could say, we are your bone and flesh. Jesus is not merely someone we believe in. But for those who have repented and trusted in Christ, Jesus is the king that we are united with. We belong to him as his body. Christian, do you think of King Jesus in this way, that you are his bone and flesh, that you are his body here on earth, making visible the invisible reign of God over his people. The response to the gospel includes this act of receiving the promised king that God offered to send us. As we look back to David, we learn a second truth about his kingship. Not only his kingship must be received as God's provision, we see a second reality about his kingship. His kingship is established by God for the sake of his people. His kingship is established by God for the sake of his people. In verses 6 through 16, there's a collage of stories. Uh, They're time-wise, they're disconnected. Uh, they're not intended to be sequential. How do we know that? Again, King Haram is, uh, is uh, the greatest part here. But also we see in verses 4 and 5 that the author is going back and forth, telling us from the beginning of David's reign to the end, he comes back to tell us how some things worked out. But in these collages of, of, of many stories from verses 6 to 16, w- the author is telling us how David's kingship was established by God. First, he... David sets his eyes on a new capital, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This is a strategic move on David's side. Uh, It was not a city in the tribe of Judah, and that's significant. It was actually a city belonging to the tribe of Benjamin, belonging to the northern tribes. It's perhaps a little shrewd of David, politically astute of David, to choose a new capital city, not in his own tribe, but in a different tribe. And the city of Jerusalem was, uh, was ha- somewhat in halfway between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The choice of the city as a capital was significant also because centuries earlier, Abraham paid a tithe to a king, uh, to Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem was the ancient city of the city of Jerusalem. In other words, David's patriarch acknowledged the reign of a king governing over this particular city. Now David makes the choice to make this city his own. It was a great fortress built on a top, on the top of a high mountain. But the challenge of this city was that it was already occupied. It was not free to take easily. And it was occupied by the Jebusites. They owned it. They were very proud of owning it. They were very self-reliant in it. They thought they are invincible. As a matter of fact, their pride and their cockiness in, uh, in their self-security was so high that the narrator is telling us a little bit of a story of the line they have used to think that they can defeat David. They talked about the blind and the lame as if they alone would be able to defend this city against David's army. And David not only defeated them, but the text speaks about David's heart hating the blind and the lame. And this is a little surprising. Uh, Does David truly hate those who are disabled? No. We will see in chapter 9 that he will receive one of Saul's offspring who was lame at his stable for an ongoing lifelong fellowship but here david is speaking about the jebusites uh, as the lame and the the pr- and the, the blind he is he has he has no room for proud dwellers who think they cannot be uh, taken over in this chapter the blind and the lame is referring to the proud jebusites and the point is David's heart has no room for proud and self-secure people. For those who treat God's king with such contempt that they would think that even disabled people could ward him off. Friends, let this be a warning for anyone who feels overly confident in their own abilities, thinking that God could never have his ways with our lives. Thinking that we're fine without God's anointed king. Such proud attitudes as the Jebusites had with David, will not get us very far, and certainly, he will not get us close to God's heart. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It was a big deal that David conquered the Jebusites. Not only that he conquered Jerusalem, such a, an invincible fortress, but particularly that he conquered the Jebusites, because the Jebusites were part of the people of the land that Joshua was commanded to exterminate, to take out. Uh, The the Jebusites were part of the the few nations that God commanded Moses and then Joshua to completely eliminate, to completely destroy because of their abominations in their worship of their gods. God had decreed in the book of Joshua to completely eliminate a number of nations uh, in that land at that time. It was part of God's judgment that he would bring because these nations have caused and has brought about such abominations on the earth that God was done with them. But the Israelites have failed to drive out the Jebusites. They were not able to finish the job that God commanded them through Moses and Joshua. So here is David His first conquest as the established king was to finish off some unfinished business of the book of Joshua. It's as if David is continuing on the conquest of some invincible enemies uh, back from the book of Joshua. And what used to be the invincible fortress of the enemy became the city of David. And David built it and expanded it And this is how we have the earthly city of Jerusalem. It's a city that God will use as a pattern. Sometimes Christians get so overly excited today about the present day city of Jerusalem. And we forget that the city of Jerusalem is actually a pattern of what God promised to do and build in heaven for us. The new city that will come down from heaven in the last two chapters of the Bible. Can you tell me, remind me, how, what is it called? The New Jerusalem. Here, God is setting up a pattern for a city that will be the center of the kingdom that he is establishing. For us Christians, we can look back at, at how God worked in, the, in times past, knowing that he is actually building a city that is coming down. From heaven into the new heaven and new earth but there's more about the city that David is building not only is David committing to expand and build out the city of Jerusalem as a capital city but God gave David favor with one of the neighbors with King Hiram of Tyre verses 11 and 12 we see another uh, highlight that the author is bringing for us this Gentile king of Tyre so admired David that he offered to pay the supplies and to send the builders, the laborers, who would build a house for David, a palace. This is a clue that David's kingdom that is now being established with the capital city of Jerusalem is going to be acknowledged by Gentile nations and looked upon favorably. Here's a clue that God is raising up a king who would impact the nations. And he would win them not by war, not by the sword. David learned a big lesson in Jerusalem through all these pictures coming together. In verse 12, look at the the lesson that David learned. And this lesson is, is sort of the hinge of the whole chapter. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. This is the heart of the entire chapter. It's not only what the elders of the northern tribes come to understand and embrace about David, but what David himself came to be convinced of. He knew that the Lord had established him over Israel. Friends, this is why the crowning of this king is such a big deal. This chapter is where both uh, all of Israel and David himself are convinced that God provided a king for his people. God established him. God is in the business of setting up a king over his people. And not only that, but God committed to exalt his kingdom. Not just to set it up, but to exalt his kingdom for what purpose? And this is the sweetest part. For the sake of his people. This kingdom business that we we see set up here in this chapter is all for the sake of God's people. In other words, the kingdom that God sets over his people, the king that he sets over his people, is good for his people. The exaltation of David's reign was not for David's, reign, for David's benefit, but for the benefit of the people that he reigned over. Well, friends, this was God's design for the king. But this begs the question, do people recognize that having ki- the king God raised for them is good for them? And this is a question we must ask ourselves as well. Is the king God set up over his people and that God exalted over them, do they recognize, do we recognize that he is good for us, that he's for our benefit? This is the opposite of everyone doing what is good in our own eyes. And just as God established David's reign for the sake of his people, we must realize that God is setting up his kingdom over us for our good if we too realize that it is for our good. Friends, do you realize that when God wants to set up shop in your life, the shop of his kingdom, he really wants your good. The rebellious spirit of this age is to reject all authority except our own. We live in a time when it's deeply suspicious uh, to relate to authority, of any authority, any kind. Perhaps it's because our own governing authorities lately have betrayed us and have let us down, have not acted well, have misused and abused their authority are taking it in a wrong direction. But that does not make the rejection of authority right. Here God makes it clear that the authority figure that he is setting up over his people is for their benefit. Oh, friends, God is setting up his king and establishes his reign for your good and for my good. But there's a disappointing detail in the, in the story here. About David's life in Jerusalem. We see him selecting a great capital city, building it up, conquering it, building it up. We see a Gentile king building David a palace. But what do you do with the rest of these details? The last image of David's life in Jerusalem is a mixture of great hopes, but also disappointing details. Great hopes in the sense that David's sons increase in number. But sadly, through the increase of more wives and concubines, David took multiple concubines and and wives in Jerusalem. The narrator doesn't even tell us their names. We only get to hear the names of the the six sons who are born to David in Jerusalem. By the way, two of them are going to be mentioned as names in the genealogy of Jesus. These two sons from these six names. At this point, the narrator is just sowing seeds of realism and the corruption of sin that has affected David's choice regarding his family life. In the midst of so much provision from God, God's uh, David's choice for a family leaves us deeply disappointed, and we'll see that this is just the beginning of the disappointment, as we will work through the rest of this book. God is setting up His kingdom and reign among His people, not because His servants are perfect; they're not. Not even the king. Not even King David, of whom we have seen so many positives so far, not even he was able to live out God's design perfectly. David sees himself here as someone who takes some creative ways outside of God's design. God clearly told the king and instructions for the king in Deuteronomy 17 that he should not have many wives. And yet David disobeyed that here clearly. Yet, what do we do with this detail? And here's what we do with it. Yet despite imperfect and sinful people, God is nevertheless setting up and establishing his reign. God is even exalting his kingdom through imperfect and sinful people. Friend, let this create in you more graciousness towards the imperfections of the people in the kingdom of God. Not that it should give you a free pass to go on and live in sin. That's not the point. The point is when we see people in the kingdom living imperfectly, recognize, yeah, it's, it's with these kind of sinful sinners that God is setting up his reign. And when it's easy for you to see the sins of others, remember, others see easily the sins in your own life. And we must recognize, have this realism that God is setting up shop, the shop of his kingdom among sinners. How amazing that David will come to realize that he himself will be in need of God's rescuing efforts. That's a great lesson for this king to realize. None of us in the kingdom of God are above the ability to sin. We should not take a free pass to sin, but when we do sin, we should learn to to hold on to the Lord and come back to Him. We'll see more of that in the course of this series later in the book. But the reality is that we are still in the stage of, of the history of the unfolding of God's kingdom when we pray with Jesus, Lord, let your kingdom come. That you will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. David here, we see glimpses that he himself needed more of that prayer for himself. But finally, this kingship that God is setting up is a kingship that relies on God for victories. And this is the last point of this message. In verses 17-25, through 25, the narrator picks up the, the long trend of battles with the Philistines again. These battles have been going on for a long time in Israel. And uh, these battles were stirred up by the fact that the Philistines heard that David was anointed king. So what do they do? They stir up again a fight. A new battle, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. The news of David becoming king over all of God's people was not a good news for the Philistines. They didn't mind him being king over two tribes all these seven years. They didn't care. But now, over all of God's people, even the Philistines realize there's something monumental about this chapter. So they react. They're coming after David, and notice what David does. Before before we look at how David responded, the last time the Philistines came out against the Israelites in battle, they wiped out Israel's army and Israel's king. Remember that in 1 Samuel 31? It had been a bloody battle, a tragic battle for Israel. Could they repeat the history with this new king? So they thought. But lo and behold, there's a new king, and uh, notice what this new king does. He's asking the Lord, Should I go? And he's asking them, not only should I go, but he's asking them, Is asking the Lord, will you give them into my hands? This is the language of Deuteronomy. This is the language of Moses taught his people how to think about the enemies of the land once they cross a Jordan. The Lord will give them into your hands. David is quoting this, this language from Moses and he says, Lord, will you give them over to me? David is saying, Lord, I don't want to fight this fight alone. Yes, I fought many battles, but I do not want to fight this fight alone. Will you fight with me? Will you fight for me? Will you give them over to me? And notice what happened. The Lord said, yes, I will. And uh, there's very little detail about the battle. All we know is David defeated them. None of the details of how the battle went. Just a simple David defeated them. Because the point of the story is not how David defeated them, but what lesson David learns in this defeat. Look at verse 20. David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. David describes God going before him in battle with this picture a breaking flood. The imagery is that no one can resist a flood that is coming, like a flashing flood. It breaks everything its way. This is how David saw God in this moment. God's presence going in battle before David. Nothing could resist him. Even though the defeat was devastating, these Philistines don't give up. They come again, as fierce enemies often do. They come again in the same place. So there's another battle. And David could have said, yeah, the Lord has been with me in the first battle. I'll just go again and do the same thing. But David inquires again of the Lord. Verse 23. And this time the answer the Lord gives him is a different strategy. How easy it would have been for David to just assume the Lord is with him. He'll just do the same thing. But this battle was different. There's no presumption on David's part. There's no self-reliance on past victories. David asks again for fresh guidance in this new threat. Friends, I wonder if your heart and mind has a similar instinct developed to bring every new challenge to the Lord, to seek His face for how the Lord wants you to face new enemies, new challenges that you're going through and not assume or presume on past victories or past experiences or just the way the Lord has been with you in the past that you're just going to be an autopilot and move on without asking the Lord freshly. God's answer in the second instance leads David to a different strategy, a different, different habit. And you see David here, this is fresh guidance, his fresh confidence, not on his past successes, but on the Lord. And... The Lord not only gave him a new strategy, but the timing when he should attack. That's new in the second part. The timing is different. Verse 24, at a particular time, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the. then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. In the second battle, it's not only the strategy, but the timing. In both of these battles, God assured David of his presence in battle. But here we see a king who relies on God to fight and win for the people. Humanly, it was David who went before the armies. It was David who led the army of Israel in this battle, but the author is actually intending to highlight for us what we otherwise would not have known. that actually, these battles, the ones who led these battles, were not David. God. These were not David's battles. These were the Lord's battles. And the Lord made sure we get that, not only by the strategy, but also by the timing. Don't go until you hear this sound. Then, and only then, the Lord is with you, going ahead of you. Oh, friends, these battles show us that even though David is a newly anointed king, the newly minted king, established to reign over God's people, David's leadership in these battles spotlights actually God's role. It was God who was going before him. David had success because he was following God's lead. This is the king God's people need. The king God's people need is a king who follows God's lead. And in this sense, David is a great pointer to the ultimate king who would come. And in the Gospel of John... Jesus oftentimes tells us, when he was attacked by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, when he was uh, being questioned about his authority and who gave him the right to do the things he does, there is an echo that comes up in the Gospel of John a few times, repeatedly. And Jesus, and this is the echo, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only do what I see what I hear my father telling me to do. That's a repeated echo of the gospel of John. So that Jesus would tell us, yes, I am the king, but I myself, I am doing only what my father is doing because in the battle that I'm coming to win for you, I too am relying on my father to bring the victory. And you remember the the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's a way, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours. And Jesus himself entrusted his life to follow the Father's plan, knowing that the Father is going ahead of him and will conquer the greatest of enemies, death itself. Oh, friends, Jesus, when he was facing a ferocious enemy, the crucifixion and death itself, Jesus entrusted himself into the Father's hand to bring victory to him. What we see in David is a pattern of the king who knows how to entrust his life to the lead of the God who is actually fighting for his people. This is the kind of king his people need. Prince God established his king over his people. His kingship must be received as God's provision. His kingship is established by God for our good. His kingship relies on God for victories. And in David, we see a foreshadow of the ultimate king God promised to send us. He did it in Jesus. Have you received him? Do you see his reign in your life for your good? Do you trust him as he trusts his father? For your battles. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have prepared our hearts through centuries of your works through your people Israel in the Old Testament so that we would understand our need for a king that you have promised. So that we would understand and have glimpses of his reign and of his kingship over us. Father, help us to receive your king. Help us to see his reign over us as good for us. Help us to trust you to lead us as we live our lives in various challenges and various difficulties and various needs that threaten us. Father, you are our King. We want to trust in your Son, Jesus, so that his reign over us would be through and through in all that we do and are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.